You're listening to Managing Leadership Anxiety, Yours and Theirs, a podcast offered in partnership with Missio Alliance. Each episode, we discuss internal and relational pressures, how they block effective leadership, and how we can move through them to a greater health. And now your host, Steve Cuss. All right, friends, welcome to another episode. Uh, This is the first episode in a three-episode run where it's just me doing solo work. And what I'm going to do is each week share a, a new tool or a concept or a metaphor that I'm working up for my current book I'm working on right now called Minding the Gap. A couple of episodes ago, uh, if you're a regular listener, you heard me announce that I'm under contract with Zondervan, really excited about uh, this next book, Minding the Gap Between What We Believe and What We Experience. Just the simple idea that we have these core fundamental beliefs about God, but we don't always experience God to the depths that we believe in God. And so I'll be taking systems theory and teaching my readers just an overview of systems theory so that they can uh, use that theory themselves to analyze their most precious relationship, their relationship with God. So obviously I've got a a file of ideas that I've been cooking on for quite a while now. And now the difficult work of every day opening up that laptop and trying to write those ideas into coherence. So each week, I just want to share one of the key metaphors or thoughts that I'm working on right now. So these aren't all the thoughts in the book. These are just what I'm working on in you know mid-November of 2022. And I want to share them with you for a couple of reasons. The, f- the first reason is, hey, it's, it's just kind of fun to get an early preview, you know? And obviously, as you hear on the podcast, and then maybe if you stick with it and read the book when it comes out in 2024, you might see the the progress of the idea from from what I'm trying to explain here on the show to what I end up writing in the book. But I think the the more important reason is I'm really hopeful that for these next three episodes, I can just uh, pester you with a way of thinking that might help unlock some anxiety in you. That's really what these metaphors and tools are designed for. So these episodes are probably going to be a little bit shorter because I just want to pop a simple idea to you. I will uh, flesh it out a bit on the show, hopefully give you some more ways to hang your head on it. But these are probably going to be shorter than normal episodes. And hopefully that's nice. You just get a little vignette, a little concept, and then if it's helpful to you, you can spend some time uh, thinking about it. Each of these concepts are designed to do really what managing leadership anxiety is designed to do. They're designed to help you notice and then name and then diffuse chronic anxiety, first in you and then in your people. And uh, that's the thing, right? Chronic anxiety, it, it has a gospel. It sends you a message. We've covered this on the show before. And it's it's interesting if you can learn to compare and contrast the message of chronic anxiety from the message of Jesus Christ. So, you know, one of the things that chronic anxiety does is it it helps you to forget that God's with you. That's a core principle in, in my teaching, is that when you are filled with chronic anxiety, it's almost impossible to notice God. You know, one of the ways that I've noticed that is when I'm reading my scripture, and Jesus says that God's yoke is easy, and God's burden is light. And then I look at my own life and I say, no, it's not. That's not true. That would be like my human reaction as I read that scripture and I say, I don't think that's right. I 
I feel very weighed down right now. I feel a lot of pressure right now. And what's going on is that's because I've fallen into the gospel of chronic anxiety. Um, the chronic anxiety has an opposite message. If God's yoke is easy and God's burden is light, then chronic anxiety's yoke is hard. It's difficult. And its burden is heavy. So you can notice when you're feeling weighed down, when you're feeling like it's all on your shoulders, when you're feeling alone, or when you feel like you're just running on fumes, like the petrol tank light is on and you've still gone 20 miles or, you know, 28 kilometers, whatever, then that's the time, it's time to, to stop, to, to notice. Okay, I'm anxious, you say. And what you have to do is just get off the anxiety treadmill. Anxiety wants you to keep going, keep running, just bear down, try harder, more of the same. So step number one is learning to get off the anxiety treadmill and pay attention to God. And one of the key ways we do that, particularly on my solo episodes, is we light a candle. That's kind of weird on an audio podcast because you can hear it, but you can't see it. But I'm just going to do that now, just on the off chance that you need to get off the anxiety treadmill right now. You know, maybe you're out exercising your dog or you're driving. Maybe you're on a literal treadmill listening to this thinking, eh, tricky. But uh, even now, whatever you're doing, you can pause. You can notice what's going on, what's going on in you. And while you're doing it, you can notice God. Today's candle. Uh, believe it or not, for my uh, people who know me really well, this is surprising to you. This is a Hobby Lobby candle, and it's olive oil, thyme, and I'm going to say patchouli. I actually don't know how to pronounce that word. This candle uh, was a really thoughtful gift from somebody who's become a friend, Kevin Jamison. Kevin in the community at Sojourn East in Louisville, Kentucky. For those of you who don't live in America, Louisville, um, it's exactly 1.25 syllables, Louisville. Uh, Louisville, Kentucky. I got to go out there a couple of months ago and spend just some really rich time with Kevin and his immediate team and also some of the pastors who are friends of his. Got to see a true shepherd in action. That's always fun for me as somebody who is passionate about pastoring, seeing another pastor just shining and taking care of their people. Thanks, Kevin, for this candle. All right, so what we're going to do is light it now. just in the confession that God is here. God's nickname is Emmanuel, God with us. It's, it's an amazing truth. And not only that, but I do love the vision of Ezekiel 1, that God's portable. You know, sometimes it can feel like God is elusive and far off, but Ezekiel reminds us that God's on wheels. God can come to us. By the way, in Ezekiel, those wheels, they're kind of these weird magical wheels. A lot of things in Ezekiel are weird and magical, but um, <clears throat> what I love about these wheels is they can turn any direction. They can move rapidly any direction. And I think what Ezekiel is reminding the exiles there on the banks of the water of Babylon, Ezekiel's reminding the exiles that you're not alone. God has not abandoned you. God's portable. God's throne is portable and he comes to us. So just now, even whatever you're doing, just a breath, just a moment to remember, to exchange the lie for a truth that chronic anxiety wants to keep you bearing down and isolated. 
God's inviting you into community with yourself, with others, with the body of Christ. Let me just say a quick word for some of you, particularly those of you in some kind of helping um, vocation. Maybe you're in ministry or a medical field or education, social work, you know, those kinds of fields where you are oriented to helping other people or bring relief. So often we are the last people to take care of ourselves, right? Like it's just, it's almost a stereotype that we like to focus on others and we don't tend to let people help us. So maybe as you're getting off the anxiety treadmill today, you can make the commitment to call somebody and just let them know that you need some help. And that's tricky to do, isn't it? But really valuable. Um, a quick psalm from my life-giving list. Psalm 103. We'll just read the first uh, seven verses. Praise the Lord, my soul, all my inmost being. Praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. All right, that's Psalm 103, 1 through 7. Uh, also, not for nothing, but verse 5, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. I'll be honest, I don't know what that means. All right. Okay, episode 1, uh, the first concept. I would like to uh, just share about lobster traps. How do you catch a lobster? This may surprise some of you, although, hey, Southern Hemisphere folks, no surprise to you at all. I grew up catching lobster. Of course I did. And um, as I've been studying lobster traps, they're quite fascinating. So I'm going to teach you what they are if you don't know them, and then how that relates to chronic anxiety. Let me set up the idea by saying this. The heart of chronic anxiety is false belief. We believe something in the moment that is not true. Chronic anxiety puts us in a false reality. But here's the tricky thing. It's very difficult to know that you're in a false reality. You usually need tools or the help of somebody else to figure out that you're in a false reality. The number one thing you are trying to listen for to help you see that you're in a false reality is you're trying to learn to listen for assumptions. Oh my goodness. If only we could know our assumptions, <clears throat> and if only we could learn to test them and sift them through the gospel, then we could be so much freer than we are now. There's two forms of assumptions that make chronic anxiety kind of perpetuate, keep, keep it around in our life. The first one is the assumptions that got us into this mess, right? That's part one. The things we assume about ourselves that get us into chronic anxiety. But the second one, I think, this is what I'm playing with in the book, I think the second dynamic of assumptions is the harder dynamic to break. And those are the assumptions about a future without our anxiety. In other words, 
the way we see ourselves, the way we see God, the way we see the world, that's what gets us into trouble. But then we stay in trouble. Once we're in trouble, we stay stuck. And then the reason we stay stuck and we're not able to experience freedom in Christ is we also hold a set of assumptions about a future without our anxiety or without our false need. It's hard to explain in an audible form. But what I'm saying is we don't change because we don't believe there's any hope on the other side of change. So uh, I'll, I'll talk about that more. Like one of the themes I'm working on is Armageddon, how chronic anxiety convinces us we're always in Armageddon. We'll get to that in a future of these three episodes. Just, just know this right now. Assumptions get us into chronic anxiety, and then different assumptions keep us in anxiety. Here's where I first learned this. <clears throat> Before I was a lead pastor in Colorado, I was an associate pastor in Las Vegas, and my primary job was crisis intervention. I worked at a church in Las Vegas, by the way, name of the church, Central Christian Church, and Central was incredibly generous with staffing and money and volunteers to do direct on-the-ground care for people in systemic poverty and systemic stuck patterns. And so uh, I worked for this amazing boss named Mark Welchel. Mark, if you're listening, hi. Learned so much from Mark. Mark was a gift to me because he was a pastor and he was also a marriage and family therapist. How do you like that? And man, I spent so much time and Mark was so generous just to let me sit in his office as a young guy, very much a rookie with systems theory and kicking things around. Man, some really great days there. But a lot of my job was to help people. They would come in off the street often, or they would come in cold. In other words, they didn't know us. We didn't have a relationship. They weren't members of our church, and they would be asking for help. Now, Las Vegas, at least at the time, uh, led the United States in most of the social ills. And one of the statistics where Las Vegas led was domestic violence. We had a massive, overwhelming amount of domestic violence in Las Vegas. So women who were trapped in domestic violent relationships would come in asking for help. And we would almost always pair up when we would work with these women. Very unusual. Hard to think of a time when I would work with a woman without another woman in the room with me. So we had volunteers and all the, all this. So these women would come in and that was where it really helped me to notice this dynamic. It was assumptions about themselves that got them into the domestic violence relationship. So a lot of these women would not see themselves as worth loving maybe. And so therefore they would attract a, a domineering man. Um, maybe early on they felt comfort by somebody who provided so much control you know, th these kinds of things. But then once they were in this tragic, awful cycle of, of aggression and not being safe, and they would like hit a wall, right? They would, they'd say, oh, I've got to get out of this. So then usually, typically while the man was at work, they would make an appointment during the day, come see us. And we had all kinds of resources for these women I was on the board of a domestic violence shelter while I was in Las Vegas. So we had access to beds. We had money uh, for hotel rooms. We, um, let's see, I'm trying to, oh, we had um, access to legal aid that could help them legally and help protect them. 
we had this incredible organization we work with called Foundation for Independent Tomorrow. These were one of my favorite local partnerships. And boy, it's so funny talking about this 20 years later. But Foundation for Independent Tomorrow specialized in helping people get back on their feet with employment and proper paying jobs after being unemployed for years. So they specialized in women in domestic violence. They specialized in people who had been in prison for years, things like this. And they would fast track them through trainings like bookkeeping or dental hygienist or something so that these people could get a proper job. So we, we had all these resources, but as we would try to help this woman build a life outside of this toxic relationship, she would resist. Um, and, and listen, uh, of course she would. Um, she was traumatized. She was terrified. Uh, what's tragically true is the law enforcement is not perfect. So the very system itself is kind of tilted, I think, toward the man. I think it's still a very male-dominated system. And so some of these women would say, well, you know, a restraining order is not going to protect me at all, for example. But we would run into all of this resistance as we were trying to show them a life outside of this toxic relationship. That's because it's not just assumptions about themselves that got them into the relationship. It's assumptions about the future that keep them in the relationship. And that's one of many complex reasons why it's very, very difficult and such an incredibly brave journey to get out from a toxic relationship like that. <clears throat> I think chronic anxiety has some similar themes and patterns where it's our assumptions that get us into us, the way we see ourselves, the, what we think we need, these kinds of things. But once we're in anxiety's grip, you know, trying to break free, it's our assumptions about the future that keep us stuck. And that's where uh, I want to talk about lobster fishing. Okay, that was a bit of a jump, but hey, come with me. So yes, here's what you can be doing this week. You can be thinking and ideally talking to a friend or some friends about can we get to the bottom of what assumptions got me into my chronic anxiety. So for example, let's take a perfectionist. Um, those of you who are perfectionists, sometimes the gift that you are to the rest of us is it can be easier to see your chronic anxiety because it's, it's so glaring. Uh, you believe that you have to get it perfectly right the first time, every time, even though you've never done it before, for example. That might be a perfectionist in a nutshell. So behind that belief, that false belief, is a set of assumptions that got you in to the tyranny of perfectionism. What's the tyranny of perfectionism? Um, the, the, the idea that you did something well or well enough is a carrot that's forever out of reach for a perfectionist. Most perfectionists I know, they never look at their work and say, I did that really well. They look at their work and they say, here's how I could have done it better or here's how I should have done it better. You following me? So then, okay, now the perfectionist is in the chronic anxiety cycle. Why can't they break free? Well, one of the reasons is because of their assumptions about a future without perfectionism. So, for example, if a perfectionist wanted to practice uh, breaking free, what they could do is intentionally make a mistake. 
Now, I've just wrapped up a fairly heavy season of traveling around and teaching workshops, and I help people identify their core anxiety. And then one of the steps we get to is we look at our um, assumptions and so on, and then it's time for action. This is the problem with chronic anxiety work. You can't think your way to change. You can't listen your way to change. Some of you right now are like, I love listening to podcasts. Good for you. If you don't embody change, if you don't actually step on the path of active embodied discipleship, um, you're not going to change. <clears throat> and so at some point the rubber hits the road and you say to a perfectionist, okay, one, one thing you could do is you could make a mistake on purpose. And it's interesting on this last run of um, workshops I did, I've done like eight workshops in the last month, um, the amount of resistance I receive from people where they'll actually, like I'm on stage with a microphone, right? I'm, I have a lot of power, but they're, they're actually um, heckling me <laughs> from, from the audience. They're actually saying, no, 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 no. When, I'll never do that. I'll never make a mistake on purpose. One of the things I encourage, for example, a church communications director to do is put a grammatical error in their email <laughs> on purpose. Like do a spelling mistake in the email on purpose. Send it out to your organization. Or I'll tell people to maybe make a bookshelf that isn't perfect, that it wobbles, right? Like when you put it on the ground, it's, it's not true. And then you have to brag about it to someone. It's absurd. That's the idea. You, you use absurdity and you intentionally do the opposite to break your anxiety assumptions. But oftentimes with these people, I get this strong resistance where they'll say, no, I could never do that. Now, what's going on? is they don't believe in a future without this perfection. That, that's what's going on. So in the next episode, we're going to talk about Armageddon and how does chronic anxiety tell you that you're in Armageddon. But meanwhile, the lobster pot. <laughs> Hopefully, as you can see, you're like, wow, yeah, Steve, um, you need to do a lot of editing for this idea to really work in the book. Hey, don't worry about it. Uh, I think we'll get there. When I grew up lobster fishing with my granddad, um, my grandparents uh, had a boat when I was a kid, and I lived five minutes off the coast of the Indian Ocean. On the one hand, it never warmed up, always freezing cold water. On the other hand, have you ever seen a more beautiful thing than when the sun slowly sinks west into the water? It's just, it's just amazing. Okay, so my childhood was spent uh, every summer for a week or two we would get to live on my granddad's boat. There was an island 16 miles off the coast. I think it's 16 miles or maybe 12 miles, but uh, off the coast of Perth, the island's called Rotnest. That's because the Dutch uh, discovered it and uh, Rotnest, rat's nest. There's an unusual marsupial on this island called the quokka, uh, Q-U-O-K-K-A, the quokka, and a uh, super cute animal. I would recommend that you Google it if you're not familiar with the quokka. You know, Australia has the most remarkable marsupials and the quokka is remarkable because it's only found on this tiny island just a few miles off the coast of the mainland. All right, so we didn't live on the island. We lived on the boat. We would just drop an anchor or a mooring for those of you who want to be particular. And then we'd live on the boat in a bay for a week or two. And every morning we had a routine. First of all, if you want a breakfast, you had to swim at least one lap around the boat. No matter the weather or the water, if you wanted to eat, you got to swim. <laughs> so we'd all swim around the boat. I think this was my grandparents' way of both wearing us out as kids and also getting us ready for the day. 
would have breakfast, would pull up the anchor, or again, for you purists, would drop the mooring, and would head out into the open ocean, and we would deep-sea fish. Deep-sea fishing, we'd do that for an hour or two, catch fish, and then obviously the, the delicious fish we would keep for ourselves, and then the less great fish we would use as lobster bait. Then we would go by and pick up the lobster pots or the traps that we had set the day before. So they'd been sitting in the bottom of the ocean for 24 hours, basically. Now, a lobster trap or a lobster pot, by the way, for my West Aussie listeners, a crayfish, it's just, hey, guys, in America, crayfish are these tiny little, like, um, jilgy things. Uh, we call them crawdads in America. So not cool. Um, so I'm going to just use the word lobster. So <clears throat> we'd pick up these lobster traps. Now, a lobster trap, at least back in the 70s and 80s, was kind of a like an oval-shaped thing made out of cane and also heavy weights. But the top of it was the entrance to the trap, and the top was like an open funnel. So if you picture like a ball with a flat top and a bottom so it can sit on the bottom of the ocean, like a ball with a flat top and bottom, and then on the top is a funnel that goes into the trap. <clears throat> the lobster would smell the fish in the trap, and they would walk or swim over, and then they could freely enter through the top of the trap. Now, the trap itself was quite roomy. You would have room, for example, for 10 or 15 lobster to live in there, and they could swim around in the trap. It wasn't cramped. Here's what's crazy. The lobster could swim out anytime they wanted. They were free to leave anytime. It was not, there was no trap door. There was no lock. There, once you got in, there was not really a system to make sure you never got out. What happened is, excuse me, I have to take a drink here. <clears throat> All right, sorry, folks. What happened is um, the funnel kind of protruded into the trap far enough that the lobster would all hang out around the edges of the trap away from the, t the funnel. And if they wanted to cross to the other side of the trap, they would swim under the funnel, but duck their head down. So it's like the funnel protruded so far into the trap that a lobster kind of had to crawl almost like through a cave under the funnel to get to the other side. The irony is all the lobster had to do was look up the funnel and see that they could swim out anytime they wanted. I mean, the funnel was wide enough, I, I would say, for two or three lobster to swim in or out together. Like it wasn't even a skinny tube. It wasn't like a lobster would have to really manage their claustrophobia to get in and out. It was quite roomy. But because the funnel went down into the trap, the lobster then had to keep their head down to go under it, thus never seeing that they all they had to do is swim out of the funnel and be free. So we'd leave these traps on the ocean floor for 24 hours, and that was plenty of time for a bunch of lobster to smell the fish, come over, get in, have a nice feed. Like when we'd pull the trap up, the fish were typically picked pretty bare. So they were in there from hours and hours, enjoying the food. But at some point, they're like, all right, I'm, I'm done. I'd like to move on. But now they're trapped. Now they can't get in. That's because... The lobster operated, if you go there with me, by two assumptions. First, the assumption that climbing in this funnel is a way to get food. Well, that turned out to be true. But secondly, the assumption that 
All I can do is keep my head down and keep swimming around and around and around in this trap. I can never break free. I can never have a life back in the open ocean again. Quite sad when you think about it, especially when we pull the lobster up and then five minutes later we're, you know, cooking them and then enjoying them for a morning snack. <clears throat> yeah, sad for the lobster. But I'm just, well, first of all, guys, the book is a visual medium and I'm looking at putting an illustration of a lobster trap in. So podcasters, you might help yourself and just Google a lobster trap. You can see this for yourself. But but also, I think this is the way chronic anxiety works. It, it lures us in to a trap and that trap is quite roomy. We can actually exist comfortably inside chronic anxiety's trap. We don't necessarily always feel prison. It's not like a mouse trap. This is my point. Like a mouse trap, you eat the cheese, you're dead. Boom, done. In a lobster trap, you can live and you're free to swim around, but you can never get out because the entrance requires you to lift your head. You have to be able to, or in my language, get off the anxiety treadmill, right? You have to notice so that you can stop living in a false reality and see that you can be free anytime you want. Nothing is stopping you from being free except your own assumptions about getting out. So I'll be writing about a lobster trap. I'll be talking about the way we get into trouble, but then the way we stay in trouble. And how can we learn to look up? How can we learn to get off the anxiety treadmill so that we have a better chance of running into reality? Uh, years ago, when we were teaching this uh, at our church, by the way, not teaching the lobster trap, that's new, but teaching the idea about assumptions and getting in and out of trouble, we used to use the metaphor of a moth and a flame. And we would say to our students, you're the moth, uh, chronic anxiety is the flame. How many more times do you want to get burned before you try a different way? And one of the ladies in our class, a great student, uh, her spouse was a leader. He was a public leader. And that meant that the people he led had a lot of opinions about him. And when he would hold a meeting, because she was a deep feeler, she felt everybody's feelings. And because she needed everyone to be okay with her husband so she could be okay. Now, she wouldn't have quite named it that tightly, but that was the dynamic. Maybe her husband would say something provocative in a meeting and people would be offended or upset or provoked. She would then feel this need to go around and appease everybody or charm them or say hi or be extra friendly, all these weird things, because in order for her to be okay, she needed them to be okay with her husband. And of course, this caused all kinds of trouble in the marriage, yada, yada. And that was very helpful to her to realize that, that this pattern that she's in is like a flame and she's a moth and she just gets burned again and again and again. And at some point, she just has to decide to, to get off the anxiety treadmill as I mix my metaphors. Well, today, what we're encouraging you to do is to notice maybe I'm in a trap. And there's room in that trap, I can swim around, I, I get a meal, but I'm not free. I'm not free. But the trap doesn't have a trap door. Um, I, I can leave anytime I want. I just have to stop swimming in my assumptions and pause and look up.
want more uh, and you want more than just a podcast, here's what we're offering for you. Number one, we have a journal for sale. You can go to capablelife.me and uh, you can purchase a journal. It's a 12-week guided journal. There's also videos that go along with the journal to help you that give you a tool per week for 12 weeks. Secondly, you can join the Capable Life self-paced community. This is our deepest dive, 17 different modules. You don't have to do them all. You just pick and choose where you watch brief videos. You do self-assessments. We give you ways to notice things during the week. We even offer monthly Zooms. We offer coaching available. It's like it's like our best offer is our Capable Life membership. Thirdly, and this is new, starting in 2023, I'm going to be opening up um, some weeks for some four-day intensives for cohorts. What that looks like is you would fly into Denver and meet with me and or one or two of my coaches. We spend four days together and we help you dive deep into these tools in a cohort. Uh, we're still fleshing it out. I don't have my dates yet, but if you want to be on the interest list, you can just email me, steve at stevecuswiz.com, and uh, we'll have dates available soon. So if you want to come into Denver for four days, get some professional level coaching in uh, a cohort of peers, we're also going to offer a way to continue on Zoom with a coach after that. So those are intensives. And then the final thing is, um, if I can help your organization, I'm currently taking bookings uh, for 2023. January, February, March are fully booked. April has a couple of slots. Uh, the rest of the year is pretty open. Uh, for those of you who want to be particular, September's full already, but basically from April onwards, I've got some availability if you'd like me to uh, come and speak. So those are the four ways to get a hold of um, uh, my tools and to experience change beyond just listening. CapableLife.me is where you find that. That was uh, episode one. Hope it went well. And then I'll, uh, I'll see you next week for our next tool. For more resources, visit stevecusswords.com or missyoualliance.org. 